Galatians chapter 3 in verse 26 is where we're going to be as we continue the series that we began last week, Peculiar, the People of God and the Ethics of Easter. The aim of this series has been for us to lean into what it means to be the church, what it means for us to be the people of God. And we've been trying to recapture what this means by looking into our family history, looking back at kind of the old family scrapbooks of those first Christians, the early church, they're in the first, second, and third centuries. What were they about? Who were they? What did they lean into? And how did they live? How did they not just survive in the Roman world, but how did the early church thrive? And what might that mean for us today? That's been what our peculiar series has been all about. And so what we've started last week and what we're going to be looking at is these uh, six distinctives of the early church, these six kind of things that set them apart from the Roman world as simultaneously incredibly uh, offensive that the Romans didn't know what to do with it. They found it as dangerous, but also Attractive. It was almost this, as they put it, a new humanity, something completely different, both attractive and offensive at the same time. We've been asking, what would it look like for us to lean into and find those things? And so today, we're looking at that first characteristic that we looked at last week, that the church was a new kind of religious identity that united a diverse people. The early church was a new kind of religious identity that united a diverse grouping of people. And to understand just how peculiar, how revolutionary this was, we've got to start with the first century Roman world. We've got to start with Plato. And by that, I do not mean uh, the child's clay that I, I spend my whole week vacuuming up. As dust. I've banned it. I've banned it from my house. There's no, we're not allowed to Plato anymore because it just turns into dust that gets everywhere. And I just... I. I'm done with Plato. So we're not talking about Plato. Sorry, I'm like itching. I'm breaking on hives because I just, my life is like, oh, Plato on my feet, Plato on the couch, Plato on the carpet. My whole life is this. When I say Plato, I don't mean uh, this anxiety-inducing uh, toy that comes from the pits of hell itself. What I'm talking about is the Greek philosopher Plato, along with his mentor Socrates, these two laid the philosophical groundwork, the philosophical worldview of the Roman world. Philo, or Philo, excuse me, Plato and Socrates. They laid what became the foundation of how Roman, Romans thought about their world, and their writings continue even into today. Among their surviving writings, one was a regular prayer that was foundational, not just to Plato, but to all of Roman thought. It showed up regularly, not just in Plato's writings, but in Roman prayers. You'll see it here behind me. Plato's recorded as saying, I thank the fates every day that I was born a Greek, not a barbarian, free, not a slave, and a man, not a woman. This is the one that doesn't show up in your like philosophy 101 when we talk about, <laughs> oh, Plato, Socrates, we have democracy because of them. Yeah, if you were a free male, you know, free male Greek, yeah, it was democracy. See, this, this, this quote, I love this because this gives us clear insight. It, I, don't love, I don't love this. What I mean by I love this is this gives us clear insight into the Roman world of what, you know, with all of our conversations right now about intersectionality, there's this ancient intersectionality that shows up here of where is virtue, where is value, where is privilege, and it's on this scale of ethnicity, class, and gender. You see that there? 
I thank you that I am, what does he say? Uh, not, I am Greek, right, but not a barbarian. I am free, not a slave. I'm a man, not a woman. This gradation of value and privilege in the Roman world, where if you were a free male Greek, all the privilege, all the rights, ready to go. And if you were a non-Greek female slave, it was you were barely human. So you have this gradation, this framework of how you understood this is what the Roman world, this is what they thought, this is how they saw, this was the underpinning framework for reality. Now, meanwhile, within the Roman world, you had these Jewish communities that held their own value system with their own morning prayers that came from the Talmud. So that would be not from the Hebrew or the Old Testament, the scriptures, but from other you know, Jewish writings. And uh, this prayer actually continues in many Orthodox communities today. You'll see it behind me. The prayer is, blessed are you, O God, king of the universe, who has made me not a Gentile, who's not made me, excuse me, a Gentile, not made me a slave, not made me a woman. How many of this is like your, your first thing, you know, you get out of bed in the morning and you wake up, you know, a cup of coffee, like my Devo time, you know, and you sit down and you're like journaling and like, thank you, God. You know, it's, it's interesting to us because this is such a profound framework that feels so alien to us. And, and maybe not alien, but it just, it, it this is a different world than the one that we would live in. You see, you have that same framework of ethnicity, class, and gender. Male, not female. Free, not slave. And just the ethnicity has been swapped, being prayed from a Jewish perspective that I'm Jew, not Greek. But the framework still remains the same. Do you see, everybody, before we move forward, you see what's going on here, all right? This framework. Now, here is what's profound. And this is what got me doing laps around my, my desk this week. In the world that the early church was birthed into, which is this world, they come out with their own system of belief, their own creed, we might call it, that overturned the very foundations of all of society. If you'll join me in standing, we're going to read from Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 through 28 today. We stand, as we do each week when we read from the scriptures, for those of you that are new, is that we understand that when the scriptures are speaking, and we believe the spirit of God speaking through them, is this is not made for just our brains, but our entire bodies. And so by standing, it's kind of a reminder to us that, that not only do we honor the word, but this is, this is speaking to our whole selves. So Galatians chapter 3 with Plato and the Talmud prayer, the morning blessing right there. Let's, let's read 3, 26 through 28. The Apostle Paul writes, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. <laughs> So, Father, we come before you, and we ask that you would help us regain what it means to be the diverse and unified people of Jesus today. Help us to glean what it means to carry this into a world that is hungry for unity, hungry for diversity, and yet our attempts of using shame and fear and anger to get is not working. And so with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, claim us and find us in this today. Let me pray. Amen. Go and be seated. Uh, who, I, I, this, I'm not going to say who was it. Whoever gave that some love at the end there, yes and amen. May your tribe increase. I was raised as, in a Pentecostal. This is getting into diversity. I was raised in, a, in an incredibly diverse Pentecostal church. Uh, my, my pastor I grew up under was Pastor Doby Weasel from an indigenous tribe. That's where the last name comes from. 
And uh, so I grew up in that. That's what I was used to. People, you know, tongues and, and the whole gamut. So may your tribe increase. I don't know who it was, but blessings upon you today. So just, I'm sure you caught it there, but just to identify, ready? Remember, Rome in Jewish context, there's this intersectional framework for value, uh, virtue, privilege, that is ethnicity, class, and gender. And the, uh, the craziness of Galatians is Paul, as a Jew, raised praying those prayers from the Talmud, writing to a church in Galatia, which is part of the Roman Empire, made up of people that have been reading Plato's works, he says, that he completely dismantles. There is now neither Jew nor Greek, right? What ethnicity? There is neither slave nor free. There is now male or female. It's a breaking down of the entire framework that was going there. This is the revolutionary creed of the early church. And I call this a creed because of its repetition within the church community. They kept saying this. Two more examples, just two, very briefly. You'll see behind me. Colossians chapter 3 verse 11 says, here that is within the new humanity, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised. For those of you who are like, what in the world? It has to do with Jew and Greek. You're like, why is this part of that? The uh, Jew and Greek connection there. There is neither uh, barbarian or Scythian, that's a way of referring to, to an Asian ethnicity, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Again, Romans 10 verse 12, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Do you see the repetition here? Galatians 3 was not a throwaway line by the Apostle Paul. This was a, a new way of understanding the world, a new creed guiding the people. And so this morning, three questions for our time together today. One, what kind of community did this creed shape? And, and within that kind of, you know, 1B, and how did their Roman neighbors respond to it? The second question is, where did this creed emerge from? Where did this new kind of overturning of the society come from? And then third, why and how for today? Why, why this creed? Why is this necessary for, the early, for our church in our day? And, and how are some ways that we might step into that? Three questions. Let's begin with, what kind of communities did this creed breed? Now, we can find examples of this by looking at your and my, our favorite parts of the Bible, the one that you regularly go to devotionally, you love to sit and meditate on. It is the, the parts of the Bible that are just long lists of names. It's your favorite. Genealogies, you're like, hmm, when are we going to do like a preaching series through like the genealogy of Matthew, Ryan? You guys are all jumping at it because you just love this. Now, we hate the lists of names because we're reading them so far removed from understanding context and vision of what's going on within those lists. But when you slow down and you study them, it is a profound view into the diversity of the early church. What you'll see behind me, we're going to do two quick examples. The first is the leadership of the church in Antioch. As you read Acts 13, verse 1, it says, Now, there was at the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, and then he lists them, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So stick with this for a second here. It's just in this little like synopsis of this kind of one, two, three, four, you know, five point leadership team, this range of diversity that you, we just read over then you're like, whatever, right? So let's first just acknowledge we've got um, a lifelong friend of Herod in Menaean, lifelong friend of who's Herod the Tetrarch? Big bad king within, the, within Palestine, right? 
So here you have somebody who's now leading the church in Antioch who has the word for lifelong friend can be translated as a foster sibling or a, um, they shared a wet nurse. He grew up in the household of Herod the Tetrarch, political leader, and now here he is leaning that. You've also got Saul. You've got um, uh, Simeon, who was called Niger. Uh, this is a comment about his ethnicity, his skin color. Niger being the word for black. So you've got this, this, this relationship here within the context of the early church of a range of uh, social range where you've got that. You've got religious backgrounds of both Hellenistic and um, more you know, orthodox or continuing uh, Jews. You have national backgrounds and even skin color. This is an incredible diversity in just five names here. That for anybody reading about the church in Antioch, it would have just been like, oh my gosh, they had this many people here. And this is such an incredible diversity that Acts 13 goes on to say that in the city of Antioch, where these five were leading a community that largely probably reflected this kind of diversity, Antioch was the city where we were first called Christians. We didn't make this name up for ourselves. The word Christian was a title made up by the people of Antioch because they didn't know what to call this diverse group of people. We can't call them Jews. We can't call them, uh, the, you know, free, freeborn, you know, Greeks. We can't call them because it's just this big mish of, of different communities all gathered together. And so I guess we'll call them Christians. The second example I'll give is in the closing letters of the New Testament, the closing little lines in the New Testament. Once again, your favorite part of the Bible. As you read through it, you're like, man, I love Romans, but I can't wait till chapter 16 where Paul lists 30 people. Just like name, 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 name. Oh, it's my favorite part. So we won't go there because, like I said, it's 30 people. But this week, if you go and read Romans 16, you'll find Paul kind of greets the people in the church of Rome, and he lists more than 30 people. And as you slow down and look at the names, you find, first and foremost, that out of the 30, a third of them are women, with Phoebe and Prisca leading the pack. We find that within those women, there's a representation of both single and married women. Some women that are listed as serving with their husbands that Paul greets them. Some women as single units, whether they're married or not. Paul identifies them explicitly by themselves. And specifically, these seven women in that grouping are praised by Paul for their ministry service. They're co-laboring with him. Ladies? Yeah, come on now. Romans 16. And then as you go into further Romans 16 and you look at the names and you do like really fun, geeky stuff that people like me just love to do, where you look at the use of names and what in other contexts in Greek writing, and you see what kind of households they grew up in or ethnicities and families they belong to, you see this huge range of slave and free, rich and poor, different ethnicities all represented within Romans 16. The church was just this incredible, diverse community to their world. It was incredible both then and now. Within a few years, the church had greater diversity within their leadership and their communities than most Fortune 500 companies today, within a couple of years. So this is the kind of communities that this creed created, but how did their Roman neighbors see them? Well, first and foremost, it did not go unnoticed. There's a Roman governor by the name of Pliny in his report to Caesar. He talks about the church gathering in his communities, and he reports that this community comprised of all ages and every rank, and then he adds, and also both sexes. He sees this, and so they see this, and, and what created this framework? They say there's all these people here, and then as the church grows up within the first and then going into the second century, in the second century, along with being called Christians, the other catchphrase of how Roman neighbors talked about the Christian movement was as a third or new genos. 
is the Greek word. It's the word for a family, a nation, a people, an ethnicity, and in modern, we could say a race. They saw the church as this third race, this new ethnic, this new family ethnic group, because it just, it didn't fit any of the pre-existing categories. But for many of us, we see this as something that we celebrate. We woo when we read Galatians 3. But for the Romans, this was not a good thing. Celsus, reflecting on Roman pagan writer, referred to Christianity as a new and wicked superstition of slaves, women, and barbarians. Now, we know, don't we, based off what we just read back in Acts 13 and Romans 16, the church was comprised of a diverse people group. So why would Celsus say that Christianity was a wicked superstition that belonged to only women, slaves, and, uh, and Jews, barbarians? He's using the virtue framework of his own day to discredit the Christian movement. Oh, yeah, yeah, those, those Christians, those are just all those like subhuman people down there. That's who it's made of. It's not for us, uh, but we know that's not the case, but that's his way of, of discrediting. Just an interesting little line there about how he continues to pull off of his Roman framework. Uh, Tacitus was a, another uh, critic of Christianity in the pagan world. He referred to Christianity as a hatred of mankind causing people to turn from their ethnic and civil gods. The hatred of mankind for him was, was not murder or violence, but this refusal to stay within the dividing lines of the Roman world. They hated humanity because they were breaking down what made us divided and ordered. And in one of my favorites, uh, Tacitus, he would continue then to refer to Christianity as antisocial atheists. This is the title of the sermon because it's just so metal. <laughs> Christians were seen as antisocial atheists. Antisocial in that they, they were seen as tearing down the, so, the social orderings of their city and atheists because they were refusing to give honor and worship to the Greek and ethnic gods that they carried. In antisocial atheism, a danger that needed to be stopped. And so this is one of the primary elements of the persecution that you see within the early church of uh, people being arrested and murdered, of people being fed to lions, or talked about last week, being crucified upside down, tarred and lit on fire to, to be the lights for the Caesar's parties in his backyard, was that they refused to worship the Greek gods. They refused to worship their ethnic gods, and, and they, were, they were dead set on breaking down at the very structures of how the world was ordered. Rome saw churches as a dangerous upheaval, disrupting Rome's order and Rome's religion that needed to be stopped. And so, I'll actually quote this one for you. Uh, Lucian was another uh, uh, pagan uh, uh, early Roman reporting on Christianity. And in this letter, he describes Christianity before then he goes on to give some ideas for how to stop it. And it is, oh my goodness, such a profound little statement that comes from an enemy of the church. He says this, you'll see behind me. The poor wretches, he's talking about Christians, have convinced themselves, first and foremost, they are going to be immortal and live for all time. In consequence, they despise death and willingly give themselves into custody. Furthermore, their first lawgiver, that's him referring to Jesus, persuaded them they are all brothers of one another after they have transgressed once for all by denying the Greek gods by worship being that crucified sophist himself and living under his laws. Here you have, in around one, uh, in the first century, uh, you have this pagan writer who's looking into Christianity, and even he, he's, it's, it's, like, it's, like, it's like the pagan like response to Galatians chapter three. 
Where Paul said, 325, you are all sons of God, he comes in and goes, they, they perceive themselves as all brothers of one another. You see this historical testament that, once again, as some would say that, oh, the, the New Testament was written decades and decades or centuries after the time of the early church, is, it's just fooey. And one of the examples here is here you have a, a pagan critic writing within the first century who's almost giving the same exact perception of what the early church was. It's fantastic grounding for the evidence and the movement of the early church, one which we have to do something with if we're going to be good historians. But in critiquing them, what I love is Lucian gives the same answer to the Galatians as the second question that we have today. Where did this creed, where did this unity and diversity come from within the early church? What did it emerge from? Why did they create it? Why did they, what led them to overthrow a whole framework where uh, for uh, women, slaves, and, and non-Greek or non-Jew people, non-Jewish people, what would cause them to further endanger themselves in the cultural structure, to further alienate themselves from their own people? And for those who were by birthright born into being a free Greek uh, uh, male, why would they cast off all of their privileges and join in with this community that would bring them nothing but being scorned by those around them and being hated. Where did this grow from? Why did these people start living by this kind of a creed? And what I love is Lucian gives us the example that Galatians 3 does. He says, to go back to his quote, they are a people that have been united by their exclusive worship to Jesus. That's what he means when he says they've denied the Greek gods. He goes, they have, they have said no to worshiping anything else, any other deity, and have made Christ the, the main essence of their identity and walked in obedience to him as the resurrected and will resurrect us, Jesus. That's that line in the opening. Where did these people get this belief that they were going to live forever? Resurrection. This is developing and growing out of the empty tomb, out of Easter, is where this framework came together. And so Galatians chapter 3, if we'll uh, go to the next one, shows in three parts almost the exact same thing that Lucian does. I was going to go to Ephesians chapter 2 today. It was in your weekly Bible uh, reading for those of you that, that uh, participate in that on a weekly basis. But Galatians 3 has just got more than enough for us to look at today. So you'll see behind me uh, some little color coding here. These three parts of Galatians chapter 3. Oh, Orange and yellow do not distinguish very well on here. That's okay. So it's red, orange, yellow. I'll keep that in mind for next time. So the basis of the neither nors, neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither, there is no male or female, is based in these kind of three statements that he gives here. The first is, uh, and in Christ, there is none of this. Second is this through faith, being baptized into Christ, there is none. So we have in Christ, then we have faith. And then finally, you are all one in Christ, is that oneness that's been earned. So I'm just going to, we're going to spend a little time on each of these three lines, showing where this all grew from. The first is that line in Christ, that this creed grew out of a new understanding of being one in Christ, of diverse genders, classes, ethnicities, and identities, all finding <laughs> unity in the person of Jesus. How did Jesus unify them? As Ephesians chapter 2 would tell us that there was something profound that happened through Jesus' death on the cross, where, as, as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, that as Jesus was being put to death, as he was being crucified, he was taking on to him all of the hostility and all of the division. 
which separates humanity from one another. And in being crucified, in his body dying, he took in all of that division and hostility onto himself. In some, some framework that we see by faith, that Jesus took all of this onto himself and it died on the cross with him. And so any division, any hostility that I feel towards you or you towards me, any sense of division of me over you or you over me dies at the cross in Jesus. And then with Easter Sunday and with the resurrection, then there is this new humanity that's been created where that old dividing lines of the old world, we now go, those are dead, and there is a new humanity that we're walking into on the other side of the resurrection. And so, man, I always do this. I'm gonna cut it out of my notes, and now it's here again. Here's the framework that, that and some of you guys love this, so that's, that's fine. The, uh, so often when, we, we, when you expect me to be preaching the gospel, what you expect is me to get up and talk about how all your sins are away and you can feel good about yourself and you're going to go to heaven when you die. I just laid out an explicit fashion that the division between humanity, the hostility that we share towards one another, just like your sins, yes and amen, was crucified and died and has been left in the grave. And y'all are like waiting for me to get to the good part. <laughs> I, I don't know how else to say this, but, but that, that it reveals the individualization of the gospel that we've done. That what you expect the preaching of the gospel to be, and this is on Ryan too, so don't hear me as like I'm preaching at you right now, but this is what we need. This is what the whole point of the series is, is the new humanity, the work of the resurrection in the empty tomb is yes and amen. Your sins have been forgiven. Yes and amen. You have, you have a, a new destination with your life, but there is something true about what it means to be human now. And so the, the, oh my gosh, people cl you know, clap, the whoo of it is that, 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 that when you look at the other and go, man, there's hostility. I know the story between the two of us, and there's hostility here. I know that with it, when people come into the new this new community, those lines die, is what the whole point of what Jesus' death was. When I look at you, thank you. <laughs> I'm going to get going now. When we look at one another with the dividing lines that our culture sets upon us, we are, are what Paul calls nullifying grace. And, and this is what the in Christ movement gets into here, is this is what grace is all about in the New Testament. I, I, I dare you this week to go find, go count up how Paul in his writings talks about grace and what's the surrounding verses around his, con his conversation about the fact that we are saved by grace. Is the surrounding context is Every single time, ethnic dividing lines. For Paul, the work of grace is first and foremost that you have a new identity that is not predicated on who you are or who you aren't, but about who Christ is, this new human, and what he's done. Does that have impl implications about your own personal saving faith? Yes and amen. But for the New Testament, it is always grounded in humanity in the collective way that we view and see and treat one another. Grace is about the fact that your identity doesn't separate my identity anymore, but that the, the foot of the cross is, is level ground. And we all come here together. And we need to break off this silly individualization that allows us to see the cross as simply the fact that I can come before Jesus and I don't have to bring, oh, my, my works are just filthy rags. No, the whole point is everybody gets to go there together. And so when we come to the cross, we see this with one another. Oh, my goodness. So grace is about the fact 
that we have been saved in Christ and that faith and life and new humanity and resurrection hope is not about who you are or who you aren't. It's not about the family that you were or weren't born into, but it is about who Christ is and what he's done. And so this is why then grace was seen as the great enemy of the Roman world order. A world that was predicated on who you are, that was predicated on the family that you were born into. Grace overturns all of this. And for Paul, all of his writings, when he talks about grace, he so regularly will do this. Philippians uh, chapter three, uh, um, two, Paul lists all of his accolades within his Jewishness. Born on this day, circumcised on this day. I knew I had Torah memorized by the time I was three. Like he just lists all of his ethnic, civil, like all the reasons why he should be on the top end of the privilege and the value. And what does he say? The one time that we get close to a curse word in the Bible is Paul says all of those things are the Greek word skubalon. It's the word for excrement, but it's closer in its Greek context to a four-letter word. The one time we get close to any curse word is Paul looking back at those very things that he saw as his privileges and his certainties that separated him from the dirty people down there. And he goes, that's the thing that's, that's crap, to put it lightly. So for us to return to these dividing lines of identity systems that, that help me see you versus me or different than me is to what Paul says, nullify grace. Second, is that these diverse individuals were unified not just by grace, but in their faith and baptism into Christ. It wasn't just who Christ is, but it was that we link arms together in the fact that we all together are a family unified by our allegiance and faith to Jesus. Like I said a moment ago, in the ancient world, you were born with your gender, your ethnicity, your class, your identity, and you were born with your gods. You were born, when you grew up, this is, this is our family gods, these are our tribal gods, here's our civil gods, and then, well, you know, we had these gods, but now they're all kind of underneath the, the Greek pantheon, the Roman pantheon, because, you know, our, our people got smashed. And so this was part of Greeks' whole syncretism thing, sorry, history moment. Greeks' whole uh, way of, of bringing in the nations that they conquered is they would allow them to keep their gods, but they would make them uh, subordinate to the Roman pantheon now. So you can keep, you know, Egyptian Isis, and you can keep worshiping all these different, you know, your, your gods, but now you also have to worship the Roman pantheon. And it was a way, that it, it worked. It worked. And what's so profound is the early church comes along and they go to none of it. And so you had all of these people that were, when they were trying Christians and putting them up for the death sentence, and they would say, just, just offer incense and a prayer to Caesar and we'll let you go. It was, it was, it was a, a basis for, for worshiping your own little gods, but also still keeping in mind the, the Greek gods. But the Christian church, they no, 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 no. Jesus alone, God alone, this is who we're here to worship. And we say no to everyone else. It is our faith that unites us. And so if we walk away from that, it will, it will be the disbanding of us. This new humanity was formed, not in how you were born or who you were born with, but that conscious confession that Jesus is Lord. I love that here in Galatians, Paul pairs this faith with baptism because it reveals to us Paul's framework, we would argue, for baptism is baptism being this public declaration paired with one's faith. Here in Galatians is one example of this, where for Paul, the baptism moment is this public declaration of one's faith, where as they go into the water and they emerge, we now go, you are one of us. 
Whatever identity marker separated us from one another before you went into the water now has been dead and buried. That was part of what they saw baptism as in the submersion was as the individual went into the water, they went into Jesus's death. And all the old gods and divinities and powers and yes, personal individual sins was left in the water as they were raised into new life. The early church talked about it as a baptism. They actually had really weird baptismals that kind of like pulled from some like, you know, kind of birthing imagery that for us would be kind of weird. But the whole point was you are now being born into a new family. They referred to the church as a mother, a place of birthing out new humans. And so the whole point was that what now unifies us is not how you were born. It's not your ethnicity. It's not the gods that you were born with. It is our, our, our shared allegiance and faith and baptism in Jesus. And this is, like I said, utterly unheard of in the Roman world, that you would choose your gods. This actually led to, man, this is our cultural amnesia. We have such a high view of religious uh, liberty, religious freedom, that you can or cannot worship who or whatever you do or don't want to. And this didn't exist in the Roman world. But the first call for it came in 160 AD from the church father, Tertullian. Our whole framework for the freedom to choose what faith or what gods we want is a Christian invention because our whole faith is predicated on you not being bound up in the gods you were born with, but the freedom to ask, to consider, to contemplate, and to make a change of allegiance. So the fact that some of you, maybe you were born in a Christian family and you walked away and now you're kind of checking things out again, your whole ability to walk away is you existing within the worldview of the framework that was shaped by the church. Similarly, this is a little side thing that's for maybe some conversations that I've been having. As I've been studying Tertullian, what was fascinating was right as he talks about the need for religious liberty, he then moves into his conversation about baptism. And for Tertullian, what we find in him is the first explicit mention of baptizing infants, of baptizing babies, and, um, and, and seeing them as, as, you know, there's more to be said here. But the whole point is, For Tertullian, the first explicit historical mention that we have of baptizing infants is a warning against it. Tertullian warns against it. He doesn't outright say no, but he warns against it because for him, that is to repeat the same problem that the Roman world had, that people were born into an allegiance and a faith, that it wasn't something they worked through for themselves. So I know for some of you, you come from contests where you baptize as infants. This is simply something you to chew on. You can come and yell at me afterwards, and that is okay. Um, and I'd be happy to have those conversations, but I'm, I'm chewing on that myself this week. So, finally, so there was a church. Why were they united? Where did this creed come from? One, it was the grace of Jesus. Two, faith and baptism. And three, it was the oneness, that they were all one in Christ now. Now, worth saying here, because if we stop here, uh, we, we can miss something vital. You are all now one in Christ is not you are all the same in Christ. This new humanity is not an erasure of differences. It is not a color blindness or a gender blindness or a class blindness where we're like, oh, we're just, I don't see any of those things. But a unity in diversity, an acknowledgement of what makes us different, but those things no longer dividing. And that kind of oneness is hard work. It was hard won on the cross, and it continues to be hard work for us to apply. And this is why every single New Testament letter, at some point, the author has to deal with ethnic tension in the church, because people can't figure out how to do this together. 
So it's, you know, it's the food that we eat, or it's the prayers that we do, or it's what, do we Sabbath, do we not? This is a regular thing. So the New Testament is a testament that, that we, this is hard work. And what it requires is in the midst of not a colorblindness or a sameness, but a oneness, it requires listening, it requires understanding, it requires forgiveness, it requires repentance. A hearing from one another and leaning into how do we best find unity in the midst of our differences, believing that this is how God is at work within us. As a side note, what is profound, and I, I, would, I would tempt you, test you, go read the New Testament, tell me if I'm wrong. The, 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 the primary emphasis for that work in the New Testament falls on most, no, it does. It falls on the majority of the culture, whatever ethnic majority is there, men who are free. The primary emphasis on who is the one that needs to lean the way in giving up their privileges and truly seeing those things as crucified for the sake of fostering identity, it falls on the majority. So in some cities, that's the Greeks. In some, it's the Jews. But then always on, on the men who are, are free. Go read the new, yo, I, 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 I dare you. I tempt you. I test you. This is legitimately Paul's understanding, is in order for this to become a community of unity and diversity, it it might be very attractive and beautiful for those on the lower end to be able to find that new identity, but for those of you that are coming from the higher end of the cultural substrata of how this is broken down, it's going to require you guys to actually humble yourselves and let go of things, for you guys to, 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 to submit yourselves for the sake of others, for you guys to lay down your privileges as Christ did. More on that next week. So all of this develops here, that we have this this unifying grace of Jesus, faith in Jesus, and now this oneness, where because of God's grace, our differences no longer divide us, but because of God's glory shown through his image bearers, those differences do matter. They should be honored and respected and brought forward. And so in these big three, what Tacitus referred to as anti-social atheism, the people of God, they just called it the the ethics of Easter. Why are you guys this united, diverse community? Where is this coming from? Oh, it's the the grace of Jesus, our faith in him, and the new one humanity that he's made us. That's where this is coming from. And so they walked that out as an implication of the gospel, as the gospel itself, a unifying work of the people. So the final big question is the why and how for us today. First, why? Why is this important for us today? There, there are some practices of the early church that were really genuinely very good and necessary for them in their day. Why this one for us in ours? It's timely as we sit this weekend at the 30-year anniversary of the Rodney King riots here in our city, and you're like, 30 years ago was forever ago. No, it wasn't. And even more than that, LA Times in a report this week, 68% of Angelinos are still uh, somewhat or certain, very somewhat certain or certain, that this city is still, in, in the words of the LA Times, a powder keg of hostility and division, with 68% sure that there's going to be some other level of unrest or riot, some form of that in the next five years. That's, just, that, that's 68%. That is the majority of our city, looking out at Los Angeles, they see there is an ethnic diversity and hostility here that is just waiting for something to set it off. Now, here's the thing. Though we can't equate diversity in the church with justice in the streets... Which, which we have a whole series on that, 12 weeks. Each one's probably more than an hour long, so I'm sorry and you're welcome. Um, you can go listen to that from two years ago because that was the whole point is, is we did that series um, 
specifically two years ago in all of the conversations on race and justice and police brutality is I had so many friends and pastors who I was watching and what they did was a series or one sermon on, on diversity in the church. And I'm like, that's awesome, but that's not what anybody's asking questions about right now. The question is about justice. These are two distinct things that overlap with one another. Um, that, that's, that's more than we can get into right now. So I would just say, though, that, that though we can't equate diversity in the church with justice in the streets, the church, when it's achieving this kind of diversity, serves as a sign to society that another world is possible. That, that unity can be found amidst our differences. That through the unifying grace of the faith in Jesus and that oneness we share, we can find more than Rodney King's plea, you know, at the, at, towards the end, uh, in the midst of all the riots. Like, can't we all just get along? Was his, was his plea. And the resurrection proclaims, no, because of the work of Jesus and the spirit of work in a community, we can do more than just get along. We can find oneness and unity. Hard work, yes. But the church is meant to be a symbol towards that. So how can we recapture uh, the reality of this creed today? First, I, I just first and foremost, I want to celebrate uh, the work that's been done within our community in this. Like, this is no small thing. Within most churches, and, and this isn't predominantly just a, a white church problem, but in general, churches more and more, as uh, Martin Luther King Jr. said years ago, that 10 a.m. on a Sunday is the most segregated hour in America. And so that's the whole point. You've got Korean church, you've got the black church, you've got the white church over here, the Presbyterian white church, you've got all these different churches that were largely these ethnic groupings for people. And so I just want to celebrate in the midst of the work that we need to do, more than that in a moment, the fact that, that there is an incredible work that you guys have been doing where I don't have time for the stories of, of people say, not understanding how things were heard or not understanding the story of what your experience has been, and, and not just out in the city, but even here in the community of listening and learning and repenting that makes me so incredibly grateful for all of you. Like really, really incredibly grateful for the work that you guys have committed to do, knowing that it's not easy. In the midst of that, though, the Spirit still calls us to a deeper experience of unity made through the gospel. You know, back before the pandemic, we uh, just did some counting. We found that uh, Collective Church, our Sunday gatherings are more diverse than the West Side. Now, so here's the thing that, that's worth noting in that. One is a celebration that we're leaning into something. We're moving in the direction of, of truly finding that kind of diversity. But we also are still, while celebrating that, mourning the uh, implications of like redlining and even Culver City where we meet being a sundown town for, for decades. You can go Google that this week uh, to, to learn something. But the, but the whole point being is we're acknowledging we're moving in the right direction. We've got work to do. So how, how can we achieve this? Well, first and foremost is just hearing from the pastors is our commitment to continue leaning into this, specifically through raising up and equipping diverse men and women within our church. Each and every single one of you have something to give to our community, and we want to raise you up and help you find leadership and voice and, and ownership within this community in new ways where you're bringing who you are to our community. One of the ways that I've been developing uh, this is through a feed forward team. Some of you uh, have been getting all my, my emails over the past week about this. Is, um, so you have like feedback on your sermons. Is I'm, I'm putting together a team of feed forward. So basically that I have a rough draft that I'll send of my sermon each week before Sunday to a, a diverse group of people within our church that I trust who basically aren't a 30-something white guy 
um, to just like read over it. What am I missing? Are there any blind spots? Is there anything I need to correct? Is there anything that I'm missing here? Any nuance that's needed? And so I'm really grateful uh, to get that uh, continuing and rolling. And then even within that, having our gathering grow, not just in ethnic diversity, but a cultural representation of the West Side. These are the things that, are, that we're committed to figuring out what that looks like and how to best do that. And what that requires is uh, time, yes, but here's the big one, people. Like, we've got great diversity in our elder team right now. We've got a Canadian, like an Italian, Missourian, and like Jewish guy, but we've got, we've got plenty more work to do. That was a joke, okay? Thank you, guys. We, we, so we want to continue to grow and lean into this, um, and, and so we're trying to develop that, but that requires People, leading requires time. And so I would just say, whoever you are, if you are like, man, I want to see my voice or my perspective more represented in the leadership or the guiding voices of this church, what if you just presume maybe you have those giftings and skill sets to give to our community and you leaned in and started serving? And, and just like, like we want to, I just, you know, I'll, I'll just set that before you. That goes back to what we started with this morning. Now, what about, though, that's from the pastor's perspective. What about communally and collectively? How can we capture this new kind of religious identity that unites us as a diverse people? Two closing thoughts. The first is our mission is making disciples of all nations. We gotta start with diversity of all people groups and all peoples being essential to the Great Commission. We are sent to make disciples of all nations, and we are called to make disciples. What I mean by this is a radically diverse church of insular-focused Christians is not a win. Multicultural church, by most counts, would be one where no, no group makes up 80% of the, the you know, predominant weight. Um, and so that's possible in some contexts and not possible in others. And you live in Montana, multicultural is like you got like, you know, one guy who's not like a white cowboy. But... Um, <laughs> The, but the whole point being that as we're growing in this, the, the win is not a radically diverse community that we're all just focused on ourselves. The, the win is mission, is evangelism. For the early church, diversity in their leadership and in their church communities was a fruit of, of what Paul called the ministry of reconciliation, which is his way of calling evangelism. So too often, I've just found churches that will try for these shortcuts to the work of evangelism, to the work of doing mission in their neighborhoods. And so they, they hire somebody in from some other like state who, who has no idea what mission is, that maybe not even like qualified for the role, but they bring somebody in just so they can like, we're, we're diverse now. We've got this guy on staff. Or I remember back two years ago when we were having conversations around diversity in the church, is we had someone who's... Um, and moved away, but was a part of our, our church community that was trying to help us think through this and was saying, well, what if, what if we went down to South LA and we like found Christians who are looking for community in South LA and we invited them to be a part of our community? And we were just like, like, uh, no, like, no. Th- th- we, are, we need to keep our focus on that we're a West Side-based church community. That's where our focus and mission is. And the West Side is far diverse enough that I'm, we're not... We've got, we got, we got work, plenty of work in front of us that we don't need to, well, it's kind of racist, to drive down to South LA and cart people up here so they can be disjointed from the community during the rest of the week. So I, this is what I'm saying. The call is not shortcuts where we can pat ourselves on the back of having a diverse church. The win is people on mission winning over diverse neighbors to the movement of Jesus. 
So I was a part of a church before I was here at Collective. We have an incredible church, unity and diversity. We had five values, and unity and diversity was one of them, and we were living into it. Some of you churches, were, you know, we're singing in Spanish. We've got readings of scriptures in, like, Tagalog. We had all that going on. Halfway through my time there, we had the chance to merge with a predominantly black church. It was awesome. What was fantastic, what sent us over the roof, was monthly baptisms of diverse people from people being missionaries in their neighborhoods. That's the win. Diversity is the fruit of faithful ministry and mission, but also of community. More on that in a second. But first, what, the, what, what this means then is what our call is towards evangelism and to love of our neighbors. And so, you know, here's our practice. So if you go to collectivechurch.com slash current series, scroll down to the practices under week two is the art of neighboring. That is your practice for this week. If you want to lean into the early church, if we want to recapture what this looks like, we need to grow in the art of neighboring. Jesus, when he was asked what the most, command, uh, most important commandment was, said he gave, he gave a, a, a BOGO, buy one, get one free. He said the first one was to love God with all you are and to love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we have taken the word neighbor to mean anyone which is true because Jesus said it extends even to your enemy. But in making neighbor mean everyone, we've, it's, you know, it's kind of like syndrome in The Incredibles. Like if everybody's a super, no one is. Like if everybody's your neighbor, then nobody is. And, and I, I think that's what so often happens. You are called to love your neighbor. You live in one of the most diverse cities in all of, of the country with incredible implications for men and women and people all around you to do mission and care, to know, to serve, to learn. And the, and, and the call for you is, what if it was actually the people that lived around you? What if it actually was your apartment neighbors, your condo neighbors, your, your neighbor neighbors? What if it was those people that were actually around you, that that was a community that was taking that seriously finding that people were walking in faith and coming to Jesus in this diverse community of unity blossoming around Jesus in the midst of it, that sounds like the early church to me. And so I want to call us to step into this. So if you go to the website, do the Art of Neighboring worksheet, bring it to your discipleship group, talk through it, and figure out what are the, what are the continuing steps that we're going to take to love our neighbors as we go through this. Now that's the mission. The second final closing thought is that community is the context for unity and diversity. It, it, book clubs and classes and you being educated, that's awesome and necessary and good. Community is where it happens. It is walking with each other, living with each other, that that unity grows and the diversity gets most experienced within one another. Because the church is, I'm going to steal Lorenzo's quote because it's that good, the church is not a gathering of religiously like-minded individuals for us to come and associate on Sundays and then disappear. Based off that framework, you could have any level of diversity, and that's great. The, the calling of the church is a, a new family, a third, fa- a third race, unified as a people who are living their lives together, and that is where the diversity blossoms and grows in the midst of the unity. So if we're wanting to lean into that, it is community. You didn't think about that. Ryan's going to give a sermon on diversity in the church, and the two practices are community and evangelism. <laughs> it's just that simple. I don't think we need to complicate it. Stanley Hauerwas, in his book, Living Gently in a Violent World, The Prophetic Witness of Weakness, he says, there are three activities that are absolutely vital in the creation of community. The first is eating together around the same table. 
Second is praying together, and the third is celebrating together. A couple little lines on each of these three as we close. We'll start with the bottom. The first is to celebrate together. To what Hauerwas goes on to call the Spirit's unifying work of belly laughs, of having fun together and enjoying one another, that as we celebrate, we look across the table at those different and we say, you are a gift to me, you are a gift to this community, and we get to receive that from one another. That as we find this celebration, we find a life that is based in a diversity built in joy and rejoicing and celebration rather than anger or shame or guilt. Let me say, let me say it again. Most, like you just, you focus on most conversations around finding diversity or unity in the midst of diversity. It's all the language and the emotions that it's predicated on is anger, shame, and guilt. And the framework of the church is through the resurrection of Jesus, those things, though existing, have been put to death. And the unity that we find in the midst of our diversity is now one of laughter and joy and celebration. Just two weeks ago, we had an awesome little Easter get-together after our, our gatherings. And so then uh, a couple days later, I was getting lunch with Ben Akinbola at uh, uh, Wiseman's Jew, uh, Jewish Delicatessen in Culver. And we were just talking through one they're pastrami. You're welcome. Just go. Um, but we were just sitting there, and we were talking about uh, the experience of this, this celebration, this party, and how wonderful it was to see this representation of all of these little kids, like, fighting each other over eggs with this incredible representation of, like, the multifaceted beauty of God's image being represented here in this party. And, and I, I think if we're going to lean into this, I think one of the best offerings we can give to a world where where so often any conversation on diversity is like specifically with, you know, white folk, is we get like all like, like uncomfortable about it. It's like, what would it look like to walk into a space of laughter and joy and celebrating and being with each other? And, and that would be the thing that's uniting and building our community. The second one is prayer. Prayer as we hold one another before God, as we as Galatians continues to go on to say, bear one another's burdens as we walk through one another's trials and challenges and difficulties, that as I pray for you, I am carrying you to the Lord. I am bringing what your experience has been to God in prayer. And so prayer becomes this, this, this moment where we bring the pains and experiences, the joys and the frustrations of our experience both in life and even within the church community. And we hold those things together as our own and we bring them to God. And so this happens in our prayer nights, our discipleship groups, in a moment in our response time. And prayer, I think, is the glue that is, that is necessary in the work of finding unity and diversity. Because as the New Testament attests, and as some of your experience shows, the work of unity and diversity is hard work. It requires challenges, hard conversations, letting go of our presumptions and our privileges of letting go and then forgiving. All it requires a lot of work. And prayer is when we bring the spirit into that work and we allow him to mediate and be the one that we see each other through the cross and not through the conflict. The prayer is what binds us together amid all of those. And then finally is celebration, prayer, and the table. And so the table is when you open your home, when you share your food. This is happening this week in our neighborhood dinners. I would just love to get that in our imagination as our neighborhood dinners being more than just like we're going to go eat tacos in a park, but as a regaining of just like enjoying the unity that we have in the midst of all these different people that are here and celebrating that together. But then finally... Is each week that we come to a moment ago when I talked about the work of Jesus on the cross, 
that when we come to the table and we share and we eat together as we come, we come to communion, is each week we look around the room and we see the diverse grouping of all of us here and we come and we take and we eat and we remember it is in the grace of Jesus we've been united. It is through our, our commitment, our faith to Jesus that we've been united. And now we come as one to eat and drink and to proclaim the Lord's death, to receive his work within us. This happens as one. There is not a, a whites and colored section for communion at the table. There is not a male or female. There is no, we all come as one. And the whole idea being that as we do this together and we see each other all eating from the table, it, it begins to work deep within our hearts, a way that we see each other during the rest of the week. We see each other in the midst of conflict. We see each other in the midst of our differences as we see the beauty of God's glory being displayed through each other. And this is the, this is the ethics of Easter. This is not a side portion of the gospel. This is primary for Galatians and Ephesians 2. This is what it means to be the people of God, is to be people who are united in the midst of our diversity. Let's pray.